0: All right, welcome to the conversation. Great guest for you guys tonight, Ken Klebenstein. He was formerly of TYT, The Nation, and now he's at The Intercept. And he's been writing about the situation in Afghanistan. And there's some really tricky things here to sort out. How do we help people? And so in fact, what his last piece was, Defense Department halts evacuation of Afghan visa applicants amid terror threat. Why are they halting them? That seems like an interesting question. Well, let's bring Ken on and talk to him about it. Hey, Ken.
1: Hey, good to be with you, Jenk.
0: All right, good to have you. All right, so listen brother, first let's understand uh, why did they halt uh, giving visas to the people that were helping us and then what's happened since then?
1: Yeah, so um, there was a political football unfortunately, um, in that the uh, terror attack in a Kabul airport uh, by ISIS-K. And I'm told by others, um, potentially other elements in Afghanistan, uh, killed uh, 13 of our service members, and um, obviously was. Sorry, i just going to adjust my camera. I don't know why it keeps tilting. Um, it's it's the deep state. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not allowed <laughs> to talk about it. Afghan. Yeah, <laughs> you, you try to say one nice thing about Biden, and that you're not <laughs> you're not able to say anything. Um, mm-hmm. So after the terror attack in uh, Kabul, which was horrifying, uh, executed by ISIS K, and uh, potentially, according to uh, folks I know in the Defense Department, um, uh, you know, other actors there, um, uh, that turned this into a political football. And then the Republicans can come in and say, "Oh, how do we know that these folks that we're bringing into the country aren't potentially going to be, um, you know, Taliban or or whatever other group?" Completely ridiculous. No evidence for any of that. But unfortunately, um, the Democrats feel that pressure, and they very often respond to that. And uh, that's uh, it seems is what happened. And so they halted processing of the um, special visa applicants, who um, in many cases helped us, helped the coalition, helped the United States, helped our partners there, and opposing the Taliban. Um, uh, and unfortunately, many of them were not, you know, rewarded with being able to come here and 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 not just you know uh, live live here under um, comparatively better. Standards, but not be targeted by the Taliban, which is what they're going around doing right now.
0: So <laughs> there's the deep state messing with them again.
1: Yeah. All right.
0: So Ken, look, what I'm interested in is right now. Where do we stand? So you wrote that a couple of weeks ago. So can people get out of Afghanistan? That actually helped us. To what roughly, super roughly, what percentage is left behind? Did we get all the Americans out? And then. Or are they still at a point where they're like, well, you helped us. But on the other hand, Tucker Carlson is yelling at me that we're bringing Muslims into the country. So where do we stand today?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I have sources that have described to me um, discussions in the White House among national security staff and politicals, where they're kind of just cowering at the thought that, oh God, what is Breitbart going to do with this? What is Fox News going to do with this? Um, And you know, they may potentially be uh, sympathetic to the uh, plight of the special visa applicants, but uh, in anticipation of what the right wing is going to do, they end up um, uh, basing their policy, uh, you know, on the specter of 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 what these demagogues might say. And that's of course a detriment not, not just to the Afghans uh, who helped us, but in the future anyone that we try to pitch, you know, come work with us, uh, assist us, will be able to help you. That degrades the case that we're able to make, and it's angered a lot of folks in the Defense Department. And you don't have to be honest. I I think there's a very good case to make for that. You know, we shouldn't be in there indefinitely. Um, but but um, I, I think there's a subordinate argument, which is, um, you know, how what is the manner in which we're going to withdraw? Does does it need to be like this?
0: Yeah, well, so same people, same thing that people are saying, of course, about your camera. Does it really have to be like this? Um, But, okay, okay. (laughs) Uh, but uh, back to serious stuff. Um, First of all, that story that you just recounted to me um, makes me sick. Uh, It makes me sick that people in the Biden administration, after all these years, are still cowards and still worried about uh, what a right winger is going to say. It's what Obama used to do all the day. Oh, what's Glenn Beck going to say? Um, I don't know. Why don't you man up and actually uh, do something and, and do it for the right reasons and let the chips fall where they may, especially when it involves people's lives uh, and stop cowering? Um, so that's my uh, opinion. And I'm sorry, I've probably said it in a controversial way. Oh my, ooh. Okay. Uh, anyways, so uh, now here's another Cash 22. You wrote about this. We have the biometric data on the people who helped us. Because we needed that material. Otherwise, when you stop people, you don't know if they're the bad guys or the good guys. Oh, We have a database, and that tells you who the good guys are, so you don't have to keep hassling them. Makes sense until the Taliban get it. So did the Taliban get it for sure? And do we think that those guys now might be dead men because they're stuck in Afghanistan and the Taliban might have access to who they are?
1: Yeah, and so just to define terms here, biometrics, it's a big fancy word for essentially what your iPhone can do, Uh, you know, can scan your iris and, uh, you know, have a a unique identifier in that. So, um, coalition forces, the U.S. government, we use that to identify partners and allies that we work with there. And uh, my understanding is, since a lot of this was done by private contractors, security was not baked into the uh, software and hardware that they used to do this. And a consequence of that is that uh, the Taliban has now seized at least part of that database. It's not entirely clear how, that, it's clear to me that they have some of it. I don't know how much. The worst case scenario would be that they were able to get the entire thing and download that um, you, you know, via whatever remote system we use to store it. I don't know that that's the case. I know that they have um, uh, specific devices, which themselves contain thousands of uh, uh, identification, identifying, uh, they call them like facial signatures to figure out uh, who, who it is that we work with. And they can, and this isn't hypothetical. The Taliban is going through and trying to find out who helped us so that they can retaliate against them and their family. So to me, this makes a case for the urgency of getting these special visa applicants out above and beyond you know promises that were made to them by the US and coalition forces. And so I know that at least some of that database has been compromised. It's unclear exactly how much. Right.
0: So that's why Ken does what he does with his camera. He doesn't want the facial recognition technology catching him. So that's why (laughs) cameras constantly moving, you can't catch him. Um, Now, all right, again, back to serious issues. So you cover the intelligence agencies and the the intelligence community. And so I'm curious if they recognize that they're the main culprits. Because the media didn't paint it that way. They painted, oh, Joe Biden made mistakes. But the reality is, if you told the President of the United States everything's going to be fine and it turns out you lose the country in 11 days, well, your intelligence sucks. So do they realize inside the community that they're really, really, really bad at their jobs?
1: Yeah, so this is interesting. The intelligence that, that um, reaches politicals is not always the intelligence that they have. I've spoken to a number of uh, intelligence officers. And analysts who uh, were privy to things that were happening in Afghanistan, um, you know, both during and prior to the collapse of Kabul. And uh, what I was told is that there were attempts to try to put this into the president's daily briefing. And unfortunately, um, there's, and this is historical. Presidents don't want to hear bad news. The people around them don't want them to hear bad news. And so the intelligence that they have doesn't necessarily make it into the. Uh, Presentations and information that is ultimately presented to them. Now, Biden owns that 100%, because he has to um, appoint people that are going to tell him what he doesn't want to hear. That's the point of intelligence: is you're going to tell someone something. I mean, at least in theory, it never really works this way entirely. But you're supposed to tell them, um, you know, without fear or favor. You know, what what are the facts on the ground? And um, my understanding is that uh, that didn't reach Biden, and that's not a defense of Biden. But um, in fact, I think that's you know uh, even makes him look worse that he didn't pick. I mean, his pitch to voters was, "I'm experienced. I've been around. Yeah, I'm not the most exciting guy, Um, but you know, I've I've been doing this for a long time. I know how to run. I know how to run the ship." And it looks like he picked people that didn't show him, uh, uh, you know, information that could have really informed and prevented some of the worst stuff from happening uh, that did in fact happen.
0: Yeah. I don't know. It could also be excuse making for the intelligence community. I think those guys in the military have been doing happy talk for 20 straight years. So when things blow up, well, it got lost in bureaucracy, maybe it did. But by the way, if I was the president and they didn't tell me, my intelligence community didn't tell me the bad news because they didn't want to hurt my feelings, I'd fire all of them. What, do you think I'm a child? Give me the goddamn intelligence so we don't lose people, right? So it's ridiculous that our politicians are such babies that this is the conversation that the intelligence community has to have. Hey, what do we present to the baby? Do we don't want to hurt the baby's feelings? And so I'm not definitely not picking on Biden here. Trust me, with Trump, you couldn't tell the baby anything <laughs> because he was so fragile. Um, so, leader of the free world, guys. Uh, okay, so in terms of um, where we are today, um, did we get all the Americans out? Do you know? Uh, and some of them, I imagine, were just caught and didn't know what to do and panicked. As some of them, it looks like, I don't know, did some of them want to stay? Are they contractors? Who are they?
1: Well, so um, I was talking to a uh, former Green Beret who, you know, has privy to a lot of what's going on. They, they, you know, work with others, do consulting, that kind of thing. And he was describing to me one example because I asked him this exact question, and he said, "Man, special forces are not suited to handle the uh, certain types of westerners that remain in the country." And I said, "What do you mean by that?" And he described to me a case in which um, a woman wanted to uh, bring with her her eighty or ninety cats. Um, in order to get out of the country, and oh, these special forces know. guys are explaining to her, you, do, like the Taliban is imminently going to take power, we don't have time for this. And she's, you know, I mean, I like cats, I don't want to like to, to diminish the you know any sort of connection this person had, but it's kind of like, you know, this is code red. Like, you know, um, not only is the, uh, the Taliban coming in, you know, you've got ISIS K now is not the time for this kind of stuff and so i think some of the criticism of biden's failure to get um you know a purported failure to get americans out is a little unfair because you know there're certainly people there that could have gotten out that 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 didn't
0: yeah. Um, all right. And last thing, defense contractors. I think I noticed that more of them died than actual service members. Um, so, to what degree did the private contractors fight this war for us? I mean, we never talk about it in the press.
1: To an overwhelming degree. And when you talk to military, particularly older military who, you know, hail from a world where um, private contractors didn't sort of run the whole show. Um, they they'll you know a couple drinks in they'll say this is a real disaster to let you know essentially these mercenaries be running things. There's a lot of frustration about that. Um, there was a study out by Brown University which found that in all the trillions spent uh, since the War on Terror, as much as half of that money went to private contractors. It is a stunning figure and one that uh, anyone in military is quite cognizant of. When you talk to them, it's interesting. You get a um, more critical picture from uh, rank and file military than you do from the news media, which is supposed to be, um, you know, keeping tabs on these sort of things. Because they end up hiring a lot of the same three and four star generals that benefit from this system, and so lo and behold, you don't hear criticism of it. But that is absolutely central to the failure, um, and and you know when you talk to folks um, it, inside the, the 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 failure of of the war on terror.
0: And as usual, the story winds back up at mainstream media failure to do journalism. No one in America knows. In fact, I didn't even know that half the money went to the private contractors. I knew a ton of it went in the procurement of weapons, etc. But those contractors fighting our wars for us, massively undercovered story. God forbid the American people should have the actual news about their government. Okay, Ken Klippenstein trying to do that at The Intercept. Everybody check him out. Ken, thank you, brother. We appreciate it. Great to be with
1: you.
0: All right, back on the conversation. So how do we actually stop violence in the cities? Well, my next guest has an idea, and that idea seems to have worked a little bit. So I really want to talk to him about it. His name is Kay Bain. He's the founder and executive director of Community Capacity Development. He's also a commissioner on the New York City's mayoral racial justice committee. And he co drafted a lot of the interesting initiatives that they're doing in New York. Kay, welcome to the show brother.
2: Peace and blessings, thanks for having me, excited to be
0: here. No, no problem. So I want to start with Queensbridge, that's the largest housing project in the United States of America. And you guys did a novel project there, and, and no one got shot in a full year, which was a really good, solid accomplishment. So let's start right there. What did you guys <laughs> do, and, and why do you think it worked?
2: So I appreciate the question. Firstly, Queensbridge houses is six blocks, 96 building. It's the largest housing development in North America and arguably the world. So let's get the size of what we're talking about in order first. And your question around what we did, a series of things. I think what we did exceptionally well was treat human beings like human beings. There's something called a human justice model. There's a theoretical framework that says we have to focus on human rights plus human development, and that's how we get to human justice. So essentially that's what we enacted in Queensbridge houses. Okay,
0: I love it so far, help me understand it better. So when we're talking about human justice model, how does that play out day to day or as a matter of tactics in this situation?
2: Got you. um, when you centralize, when you, when you rehumanize a community like Queensbridge, which is very um, typical as it pertains to housing developments. Let's say in New York City in that the median income in a place like Queensbridge houses is approximately fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars dollars a year. As you know, the poverty line exists around $24,000, $26,000 a year. So people are living with that type of poverty in general, right? This is a housing development conditions, not only in New York City, but around the country. Um, So there's fundamental foundational needs that have to be met when working inside a community like this, but it really revolves around a three layered approach. First, there's work that we do with community empowerment. So that people know that they are seen and heard. We work to organize and mobilize in the community around initiatives. Second, we work on system change. Queensbridge housing, for example, is subject to environmental racism. There's a lot going on. Again, atypical, unfortunately, to communities of color, we get a lot dumped on us. So systems change is the second component. The third and final is individual transformation. And that's to your question around the day to day activities. So that could look like employing young people in a community where unemployment rates are skyrocketed and ridiculous to working with what we call youth builders, these are young people that we take and mentor and provide them with entrepreneurial insights and skills. We provide them with exposure, access, opportunities, and we change the power dynamic in the neighborhood.
0: So I want to talk more about how it worked. But in order to do that, we kind of have to go backwards as you're suggesting here and find out what wasn't working. So you're saying rehumanize them because they were not treated that way for a long, long time. And you know, so every once in a while, cops you think pressure the politicians. All right, let's go crack some skulls. Do this the old-fashioned way, and that's what they understand, etc. Right? When right. they do that, what goes wrong? That causes more violence, not less violence.
2: Man, so overcriminalization has a lot of serious repercussions and ramifications. It has never worked. First and foremost, so we spend about let's say eighty seven to 90 billion dollars a year incarcerating people. and prisons are the one space, the one business I know of where you fail miserably and you expand your model more. Prison every year, thirty percent of persons that are incarcerated become reincarcerated. Recidivism happens in every three years, you get sixty percent. Imagine any other business in this country or in this world for that matter, where you could have that type of failure. And then the outcome be expansion of that model. If let's say Tesla or any other automobile industry maker was to produce those type of results, they will be shut down immediately. But prison is the opposite. So to your question about the over policing, and the over criminalization, these are communities, these housing developments and areas that we come from where that has been the answer for generations and generations. What we did was something different. We put resources in the hands of the people who most most desperately and immediately needed it.
0: Yeah, so let's now dive into that because I understand all the wrong things, right? And we talk about it on yep. the Young Turks all the time. So, and, and I understand why people go into it. So most people go into gangs for protection more than because they want to do something aggressive, Etc., right? And it's all about opportunity or lack of opportunity. And I use the example of my hometown. My parents grew up in a border town in Turkey. And in the old days, they had these crazy laws where you couldn't do any cross border trade. But so smugglers got really rich because everybody wanted to do cross border trade. And it was kind of harmless. But what it did was it created gangs and it created a criminal situation where none had to exist. But if you were smart in that town, with the exception of my yeah. dad and my uncle who just didn't want any part of anything physical or violent, right? But you, the opportunity was in doing smuggling, so everybody became smugglers. So I understand right. that concept, right? And then, then you add in overwhelming police force that then alienates people, creates a prisons, makes it worse. We all okay, smart thinking people understand that, right? But when you're going yeah. to rehumanize them, as you put it, like what is it? I'm trying to dive into the details. Like, what is it that gets through to folks and says the next time they're about to have a conflict with guns, they actually don't do it, right? Right. You
2: see what I'm saying? Right. That's harder to yeah, understand. There's a few things. So when we talk about gangs or units of protection, um, We have to even humanize that, and that's not a popular notion. But there's a lot of truth in it. Understand that units of protection are naturally occurring. They're actually very logical when you don't feel safe. When your human needs are not being met, the rational, logical, appropriate adaptation is to form a unit of protection. So many would say law enforcement with their blue wall of silence is a gang or a unit of protection. What you describe in your indigenous land in your native space, Um, was people forming around economic mobility, finding ways to make it work. This happens because human beings are brilliant geniuses and sometimes it goes left. So I'm by no way trying to take away the personal responsibility that people should have and some of the destructive behaviors of these groups. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when you live in intense, abstract poverty, when you are subjected to health disparities, All of the pre-existing conditions that we talk about in COVID, for example, that black, brown, indigenous people of color have suffered with for generations, there are certain byproducts, certain things are gonna come from that. And people will form units of protection. Now, the answer to your question is channeling those skill sets. So I'm not removing myself, I come from the underground economy, I come from that background, I come from the streets. So what I understood was, I had leadership ability, I had charisma, I had intelligence, but I didn't see a vehicle, a medium in which to place that where it could prosper and flourish. The examples weren't there. Many people in the communities that I come from, that my family comes from, live and exist in a four to six block radius. That's very limited. So you don't see a lot of success stories to emulate, to imitate, to move towards. And so what we did in our work And not only in Queensbridge Houses, my organization Community Capacity Development is around the city of New York and working around the country. Because we think we've tapped into something that's really important here. When you treat people with dignity, when you give people um, avenues to aspire, when you provide people with an understanding of social capital, when you give people the tools for growth, It's amazing what happens. It's amazing where we go. And we surpassed 365 days in that housing development. We've gone 1000 days in Brooklyn in certain places where violence was the day to day norm. We've done this again, not only around the city of New York, but around the country.
0: Yeah, no, it's an amazing story. I'm trying to understand the, the very core of it so we can repeat it. Uh, and stop doing stupid things and start doing smart things. And so, the reason I tell the part of the reason I tell the smuggler story is because it's not like that town uh, had a, like a DNA of evil smugglers. And right. <laughs> no, they lived near the border, and that was an opportunity, right? That's right. And, and so, you talk about the underground economy because that's the opportunity that's available there. So, is it just opening up more opportunity? Is it when you treat people with dignity and respect, they respect themselves more and think maybe I'm worth something, maybe I don't want to throw it away, go to jail the rest of
2: my life if I shoot someone, etc. Is that the core of it, you think? I say yes, 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 and more. And identity definitely plays a role in it. Economics absolutely plays a role in it. But listen, when you start to address some of the post-traumatic slave syndrome that happens to people of color. When you start to look at and deal with some of the deep intergenerational traumas, right? Then you get to the core. We have to look at the root causes. Why would someone, no one I know and myself included. I was a teenager who carried a firearm when I walked around New York City. I didn't carry one, I carried two. But I didn't wake up in the morning and say, today's a great day to die. I woke up in the morning and said I have to survive. So people are in survival mode making survival choices. And then when you look at America, which really perpetuates and teaches and instills a culture of violence on so many levels, it becomes normalized. New York City is known for being a cold space on a lot of levels where people mind their business. That's the cultural norm in New York City. So when you get into this isolation mode, into the survival mode mentality as we call it. You see certain behaviors again become normalized and we become desensitized to them. We attack that at its roots core, roots core. and what we do, we, we're the real models. We're the ones who not the role models with the silver spoon where everything was perfect for us growing up. We're people who have bumped our head, gone through some of these challenges and are now here to be the examples or the real models for those coming up behind us. And credibility plays a major part in what we're talking about.
0: Okay. Everything you're saying is amazing, and I think it sounds exactly right. So I got to ask you one last question here. So, um, if you were mayor, governor, president, what's the one thing you would do to make the uh, situation uh, better in those communities?
2: So there is no one silver bullet to fix and remedy the situation because we didn't get into this predicament. Um, you know, it was a myriad, it was a, it was a variety of things that have compiled on top of each other to create this confusion. And this system that actually works for some, but not for all. So I would say if, if I had one of those esteemed positions, which I don't seek, I, I don't envy those persons in, in politics, um, I would say we need a holistic approach. We need a human justice approach that puts people at the center of the solution. And with humanity and reclaiming our humanity, you will see the difference that is necessary for us to succeed.
0: Yep, yeah, I think that's exactly right. All right, Kay Bain doing amazing work in New York. Everybody check out Community Capacity Development. We put up the the website there, we'll put it in the description box below. Check it out. Kay, thank you so much for joining us, appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much. Last thing, I want to invite you to come out, brother, I'd love to see you. We got a march coming up October 11th, the Human Justice March all through the city, 100 organizations. Please come out with us.
0: Well, I'd love to do it. And we've already had some impact in New York with helping AOC and Jamal Bowman win. So we got a lot of folks in New York. And so, yes, I'd love to do it. You got a date one day.
2: Love it. Hold you to it. All right, brother. All right. Peace.